I'm going to begin a series of teachings that really has completely to do with where we are currently as a church in our discussion, deliberation, and prayer about affiliation as a local church, uh, particularly our thoughts towards Sovereign Grace Ministries. And what I'd like to do over the next few weeks is today just start with kind of a broader category of discussing the whole thought of should a local church affiliate with anyone? And do we have biblical precedent for us to pursue that? And then in the next couple of messages, we'll narrow that thought a little bit more specifically to Sovereign Grace Ministries and who they are. Let me ask you guys real quickly, how many of you guys here in this service uh, have been to a Sovereign Grace Ministry event, either a celebration or a small group leaders conference, but you've traveled with us and gone to a Sovereign Grace Ministry? Hold your hand up for a second. Wow, very different than the first service. At some point, we'd like to introduce this service to the first service and let you guys meet uh, a vastly different uh, group in that service, exactly the opposite. Almost everybody had been, and very few had not been to something. Um, It would be important for us, for you, who the Lord has called and joined to be a part of this church, to be as informed as possible about what is Sovereign Grace Ministries. I've heard you guys talk about it. Who are they? Well, what we've done this month and will continue to do next week, we're going to put together a little information packet that will be something you can take as a handout for each family. And you can look through uh, really the, the history of Sovereign Grace Ministries and where they've come from and who they are. And then also kind of our relationship with them and what that's occurred over the years um, we began to relate in a friendship sort of a fashion with those folks back in 1997. We'll talk a little bit about some of that today. But to let you get more familiar with who they are, I think one of the things that most readily exposes us to what's in the heart of a ministry in particular or a church is to listen to what they teach. Um, you, know, you have very limited opportunities in pulpit settings. And when you hear us teach something, when you stop and you think, we get 52 shots at saying something a year. That's all. 52 shots at that. Um, We want to spend that currency very carefully. We want to make sure we're teaching in areas that are important from God, both doctrinally important, biblically balanced, and, and addressing issues that are relevant to us. And so those are important things. If you want to find out who we are, you just go back and listen to tapes, and you'll find out here's what's important to us. Well, a similar thing is true of Sovereign Grace Ministries. And so what we've done to help you with that is we have taken a lot of Sovereign Grace published materials and put them on a table. On your way out, you'll notice it's a table to the right, separated from the book nook. The only thing remaining in the book nook is Sovereign Grace Ministries worship CDs. It's still over here. But over on this side, I think, is all their books that they've published. Um, There's a particular little set of books that that I I don't make enough noise about in this category. It's a, a series of books that they publish called the Pursuit of Godliness series. And you'll see and they all kind of look similar, the covers of them. How can I change this great salvation? There's about three or four of them that are in that series. Uh, they are simply some of the best written books for a general church population that I think you'll come across. They are doctrinally insightful. They are well studied, but they are written by pastors who are going to take the do the work of studying theologically the point and the theology that they're trying to make in the books and individual chapters, but then present it with the mindset of this is being read by a general population of the church. And they're wonderfully applicable, very insightful. If you've not read anything by Sovereign Grace Ministries, I would, I would encourage those books uh, are excellent. But there's many books that you'll recognize we've quoted from or mentioned that we have benefited from greatly. The books are for sale. The CDs, however, we have gotten permission from them to make copies and give away. And so just to speed up the opportunities that you have to get familiar with them, all the CDs that look like this, I think all of them that are set out on that table, they have a little label in front of them. There's a variety of topics that are there that cover different issues that we thought they spoke well on and that you should know what their views are in those categories are available to you just to pick one up. So if you'll take one per family uh, and take one only if you're going to plan on listening to it, obviously. Uh, I want to recommend one in particular this week, and we'll touch on different ones each week. Uh, This is a message that was delivered by C.J. Mahaney at last year's celebration conference in Florida. 
It's called Cravings and Conflict. It's from James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. If you've been a part of the class on conflict, you will absolutely enjoy listening to this CD. It will, well, enjoy is a, enjoy in a good and painful kind of way, you know? Um, it will definitely split open some real issues that, that exist when we get into conflict with others. It's not just a matter of something on the externals that's driving this. This is all about getting to the heart of what's going on when we're at conflict and when we're having those conflicts. Uh, it's excellent. Please pick this up. I think we've been having a bunch of these to give away this week. Uh, if you exhaust taking all those, we'll make more for next week. But that's why those uh, resources are available to you in the foyer. What we're going to do in the next few weeks by way of messages is address biblical issues and observations about affiliation, about our relationship with Sovereign Grace as well in the coming weeks. And we want to open those meetings up for you to, to ask questions, to be as fully informed as possible. Uh, we won't do this today, but we will do it next week and the week after that. We will reserve about 15 minutes after the message, both of those weeks, for some question and answer. So if you've had questions about Sovereign Grace Ministries, about thoughts on affiliation, about why we would consider doing this, uh, please write those down. You can email them to me if you go to our website. You can email them to me, and I'll make sure and look at some of those and ask some of the more relevant ones in those sessions to give some answers to. Um, also, we're planning on, at the end of this month, we have Danny Jones coming from the Sovereign Grace Church in, in Orlando. Um, when Danny comes, we will have a question and answer time as well with Danny. So we'll probably do that during the School of the Word. I think at this point we'll plan for that. So just a lot of opportunities for you to get exposed to what our thinking is in this category and for you to ask questions, pray with us, and be as fully informed as possible as to what we're considering and how you can participate in that. This morning, I titled the message, really the series is just real simply titled, Why Sovereign Grace Affiliation? It's right to the point. Why even consider this? Today's message is entitled, The Model of the New Testament. Um, this is a very simple thing about us. We're simple people. There's nothing real fancy about much of anything that we do around here. If you were trying to figure out, why, why does this church teach what it teaches, pursue what it pursues, what programs can we expect next to come from the church, um, I think what you'd be safe to say is, we are simply trying to duplicate what we find here. When we go to this word, we find it saying something about how we live our lives, what the church should be like, what it should emphasize, what doctrines it should present. What we're not trying to do is figure out how to be the novel church on the block. You know, how to be unique. That You know, we do this. If you come to church at Lakeview Christian Center, nobody else has got this. We've got this. And... And I say that because that's in a lot of church world corners today. It's almost as though churches are learning how to compete with each other and how to be unique. Um, we're not trying to be unique. We are trying to be biblical. And let me give you a couple of examples of that because I think you'll identify some of these examples. Even last week, last week we taught out of Romans chapter 13. Uh, if you'll remember, I, I mentioned some Hall of Fame type sins that... The Bible says one thing about, and our modern culture says something else about. Our experience may say something. The culture we live in may say something. Two of the ones I picked on in particular as examples of this were uh, alcoholism and homosexuality. Uh, our culture is all over those topics today. And it's saying a lot about them. And it's saying a lot about you if you struggle in those areas. And those issues are present in your life. They brought definition to them. They brought ideas to them. Well, when you hear us speak, the world, right, let me just, this is the Bible, and the Bible has remained absolutely in the same place it's always been on all these topics. Man drifts from them. So if we're not careful, man ends up way over here on these subjects. And then you come to church, and we start speaking, and you know what we're not trying to sound like? We're not trying to sound like this position. We are trying to preach from this word. And so when we stand up and say things, sometimes I realize this, and especially in, in this service in particular, where there's no, so many new folks, that we sound radical in some categories, ridiculous in others. Because what's familiar to us is way over here, but 
try to identify with you our heart in preaching. Um, we're not trying to just be rabble-rousers. You know? Let's take a subject and let's just sound as, as bizarre and far off that thing as we possibly can. Let's just protest what's being said out there today in the world. That's really not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is preach the Word of God. And when you preach the Word of God, you find out there's this big discrepancy between this position here and what the Bible says. And so in categories like those subjects we mentioned yes, uh, last week, we're going to sound radically different. Matter of fact, we often sound radically different from most popular psychology. Popular psychology today has come along and analyzed human behavior, and it's drifted way over here, and it's given us definitions and terminologies and how to get healed and how to overcome that, how to manage it in your life. But the Bible spoke about all that stuff a long time ago. And so when we stand up and preach, we're going to preach this. We're not trying to figure out how to, how to make this sound like this. We're not trying to figure out what's the middle ground here where we can pull a little bit of the Bible this way and a little bit of the world this way because the world's got some good ideas too and we should... We're not trying to do that at all because we absolutely believe this word is sufficient. And that would be true whether it's popular psychology, whether it is um, practices of how we live our lives, the roles of men and women. The Bible speaks about the roles of men and women. Culture has drifted from those positions to where today... Women and men are involved in very, are being encouraged in very different directions than what's here. Now, if I open this Bible up, and at some point you're going to come across this, and we simply teach from the Bible what the role of a woman is, what the role of a man is in society, what they are in a family, what they are in a marriage, how they're to relate to one another, how they relate in the church, and how they function in the church. If we teach that from here, it's going to sound, let's see, archaic, Neanderthalish. Uh, like we're out of step. Like these ideas are like the modern thing. That's like you know, you're driving this old beat up car when there's a shiny new car that you could be driving in the category of roles of men and women. Um, but we're not looking for shiny new cars. We're looking for truth. And so we're going to go back to the Bible and we're going to preach from that. Now, when it comes to how do you do church? How do you experience the Holy Spirit? We're going to do the same thing. We're simply going to go back to the Bible. We're not going to start with our experience and try and preach from that. For instance, uh, this morning, if you were here in the early service and you were here for prayer, this morning there was a great deal of time given for us to pray for supernatural intervention from God in the area of someone who is sick, in the area of someone who is dying, in those categories, we spent a great deal of time this morning asking God to come in and override the natural element that is in place and to do something supernatural in that arena. Now, that would, that would begin to dabble into the arena of what do we believe the Holy Spirit is up to today? Do we believe in spiritual gifts? Do we believe that there are supernatural phenomena and dynamics that accompany the church that are expressions of the life of God that we use and when we minister to one another. We have resources that, that the, the only thing to do this morning was not to pray consoling prayers for Mary, although that's absolutely right that we would do that, but that we would pray for supernaturally God would raise up a young man who's on his deathbed in a hospital, that we would lay hands on the sick. I know Peter's been to visit him. I went to visit I put my hands all over that guy and I'm praying for God to do something miraculous. Now, where do we get that idea from? Let me tell you where we don't get it from. We don't get it from our experience. Do you know why? Because I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Now, I've seen some people get healed. I've seen people get delivered from demons. But maybe a lot of you here have never seen that. I'll tell you this. I've not seen much of it. It's not very common to see people get delivered from demons. To see people get healed miraculously. It's not common. So, because it's not common today, should we preach that, you know, in the rare exception that perhaps maybe, you know, it's not likely, but in a lifetime, this might occur. Where would I get that idea from? Would I get it from the Bible? No, I'd get it from my own experience, would I? Now, the same thing can happen. Sometimes we fault people who have too much experiences, right? They're bouncing off walls and doing things that we think, oh, that's a little crazy. Um, well, same premise... Let's not preach from our experience. Let's preach from the Bible. 
The Bible has lots of experiences in it. People get healed in the Bible. People get raised from the dead in the Bible. Demons get cast out in the Bible. People speak in tongues in the Bible. People are filled with the Holy Spirit and they prophesy in the Bible. People lay their hands on the sick and the sick recover. That's all in here. So even if the church has drifted from that position and it's out over here now, and in, in many churches, people don't get healed and people don't speak in tongues and people don't get filled with the Spirit and they don't lay hands on the sick and they don't cast out demons. So they don't do that. Should we preach that? No. We should preach this. This is a very simple thing. God has given us His Word. We preach His Word. And the church then should benefit from it. Now, now what's that got to do with affiliation and thoughts on that? Well, at some point, the leadership of the church has to wade through, what's the church supposed to look like? What's a local church supposed to look like? What's the leadership of a local church supposed to look like? What are we supposed to pattern ourselves after? How are we supposed to take steps into the future in that category? Now, I'll take you back a little bit in our history. I'll tell you a couple of historical moments for us. In, in 1997, our church underwent uh, probably a radical change, or at least the beginnings of radical change. During that season, um, the fellow who used to operate essentially as the senior pastor who led the, the team of elders, in May of 1997, he resigned. And so, at the end of May, beginning of June, we were in a posture as a group of leaders. In that time, it was the same elders who are present now. Myself, Peter, uh, Bill Treby, Steve Roberts, and Phil Widener. Of deciding what would we do by way of direction for the church. Since the, the guy who was the primary speaker in the church, the primary leader of the church, uh, was not in the equation any longer, what would we do? And so, you need steering and mechanism in that moment. And, you know, by God's sovereignty, he had begun in my own heart before we knew any of this would happen about a year and a half earlier for me to begin to get really interested in what is the church supposed to look like. So I'd already begun to study that topic out, begin to look scripturally at different elements of the church operating, begin to buy materials and look at and read thoughts, etc. Uh, one particular book was very popular at that time. There's a book uh, that has actually been followed up by a little bit of a sequel that's even more popular. Um, it's, a, it's a book written by Rick Warren. Back then, today's book is The Purpose Driven Life. Any of you have heard of that? Uh, this book was called The Purpose Driven Church. It was written in 1995. I don't think I got it until about 1996, 97-ish. And in this moment, we're having to make some decisions about what kind of church are we going to be. And I've already had some thought bubbling up in my heart. So I've got this book. I've read through part of it. And it really is a book on how to do church, is what it is. I, I had a, a youth conference I was speaking at in Indiana. That, In spite of the fact that the church was kind of in a little bit of a crisis there, I really felt like I was supposed to go to that thing. I couldn't cancel on these folks in the last minute. So I went away for a week and I took materials with me. And in between sessions, I would read and just study. So I'm reading this book. It's written by Rick Warren as pastor of a church called Saddleback Community Church. And let me just say this about Rick Warren. I, I don't know if I have read many authors who um, explain themselves as well. I, mean, I give the man extremely high marks in being able to communicate his thoughts, being able to give it to an audience in a way that they're going to benefit from it. Uh, and a, a huge gift of administration. The, the views that he had on how to administrate a church were second to none. Uh, just was an excellent book in many, many ways. There were some elements, though, that I could not find a biblical reference point for, which just caused me not to be greatly influenced as to what this church was going to become. We did not become a seeker-sensitive church because I, I could not find the seeker-sensitive dynamic in the scriptures. I could not find a place where evangelism, actually a certain type of evangelism was elevated to the point of lowering expressions of worship and pursuit of holiness and the importance of equipping the saints for discipleship and turning the majority of meetings where most of the people that would come to church would be exposed to a very introductory level of Christianity, which is what a seeker-sensitive model, which is what their church is, was, was building and so those things did not bear witness with me. Now, listen, I'm reading a book by a guy who has taken a church from a handful of people, and at that point, it was over 10,000 people. 
So, you know, pragmatism sells. Right? You, uh, you go out tomorrow and, and take a product and sell it and become an instant billionaire over it. Everybody's going to want to know, how did you do that? So your success immediately will give you an audience, regardless of whether or not what you did was the right thing or not. Now, I, I think there was many right things going on. I'm sure lots and lots of people's. I'm not trying to really give you a review of his book here. I'm just trying to highlight that there are elements in the book that you can't find biblically. You can't substantiate those patterns biblically. One of the ones that was most obvious to me was the invention of a guy called Saddleback Sam. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Saddleback Sam was a compilation of characteristics of a guy who lived in the Saddleback community. He was about 40 years old. I remember it's 1997, if I remember all this right. He was about 40 years old. They had a little picture of him. You know, he, he worked in the valley with this type of job. You know, he drove a BMW to work. He had this many kids. He had this much income. And so there was a characteristic of who he was. And that's who Saddleback Community Church was aiming its evangelism at. We're going after Saddleback Sam. So it was almost like a marketing approach to evangelism to where of all the people that exist in the world, we want to go after this guy. And that just jumped out at me at where on earth did you get that idea? Well, you get it from a marketing book. You get it from an executive approach to running a business. But where you don't get it from is here. And, and that caused me, again, to appreciate much of the organizational dynamics of the vision that this man had for a church. But to realize there are some, some underpinnings that are missing from this Bible. Because nowhere in here, you don't find Saddleback anybody here. You find going to all the world. And if the Lord brings you rich, poor, black, white, tall, short, uh, whatever he brings you, that's who he brings you. You love them, care for them, and lead them into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And, and we're target whoever breathes out there for that purpose. Not a narrow niche. So I say all that to say, what, what are we trying to become? Well, we're, we're simply trying to become what we have found here. We're trying to become all that this Bible gives to us to be as a local church. Now, today what I want to do is I want to highlight two dynamics that I think we're going to see clearly on the pages of Scripture. I don't think we see them clearly enough here for us as a local church. And so these are areas we want to grow in. We want to move in this direction. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. These two elements are ways that affiliating with sovereign grace will increase our resemblance to the New Testament church, which is what we're after. We want to look as much as possible like what we see here on the pages of this word. Ephesians chapter 4, let's back up into verse 7 and we'll get a little bit of context here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then there's a little parenthesis of thought in verses 9 and 10. He picks this thought up again in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And here's why he gave them. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So, you see in this passage, there's a goal that God wants to accomplish. He wants his saints to be built up. He wants them to become strengthened. He wants them to grow on to maturity. He doesn't want us to stay as infants. The implication of this verse is it's possible to be saved and stay as an infant. To be blown by winds of doctrine. To not gain strength. And rigidity in the things of the Spirit so that the world doesn't blow us over and displace us constantly. Every little thing that comes along, we find ourselves struggling to gasp for the next spiritual air. Well, God said, I don't want my church that way. 
I want my church to be solid. Matter of fact, I don't want it just to exist and survive. I want it to promulgate my purposes upon the earth. So God made sure of that by doing something else. So get in, in, in your mind what God's mind was. I want my church to be strong, healthy, and vibrant. I want the individual members of the church to be able to go into all the world with equipping and strength in their own life so that they can do the work of ministry. I don't want just a few people doing the work of ministry and a whole bunch of people watching that work take place. I want my body to be ministers. I want them to be able to handle the Word of God. I want them to encounter life. I want them to stand at the door of the kingdom of darkness and push it backwards and advance the kingdom of light. God wants every believer to be able to do that. His means of doing that is in this passage. When he ascended on high and he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. So it's God gave a, a means of grace into people's lives. And he actually begins by saying, grace was given to each one of us. So grace is given to the body of Christ through a vehicle, through a means of that grace getting delivered. And that means is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It's the gifts given to the body of Christ for equipping. Now, what are those gifts? They're apostles, prophets, they're people. They're not boxes, they're not commodities, they're not something you can buy at the book nook. They're people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. Now, I'm going to say it this way because the Greek is, is a little bit questioning. Pastors and teachers is whether they are pastors and then there's some teachers or whether the pastors and teachers are the same. Okay, for my purpose, I'm going to say the pastors and teachers are the same. So, essentially, you've got four gifts that are given to the body of Christ. And I want to highlight something today about that. God said, I have something I want to accomplish. The means of getting it accomplished is for these four gifts of people to function in people's lives. All four of these are necessary for the church to become what it's supposed to be. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it discusses spiritual gifts, says that there's a variety of gifts, a variety of them, and a variety of ministries, and a variety of effects. So these gifts that the Holy Spirit brings and that God gives through these men, these gifts are going to have a variety of effects upon the church. And when all of them bring that variety of effect upon the church, the church matures and grows and becomes what we see in this passage capable of doing ministry. Now, if, if I could put this in an illustration, if, let's suppose God was interested in having you build a house, build a house, like, you know, wood, nails, roof, and all that kind of stuff. And God said, uh, Barry, I want you to build a house. Uh, here is a toolbox. In this toolbox, you will find a hammer, a saw, a drill, and a tape measure. Please, build a house. I want it to be excellent. And he gives you that. Now, what if Barry decided, you know what? Some, he opens the toolbox up and he says, you know, some of these things, well, you get hurt using some of these things. This tape measure, I understand this tape measure. I've seen numbers before. It does this. That's not real complicated. And he shuts the toolbox and he puts it on the side and he goes, I'm going to go build a house for God. And he has a tape measure. And you'd think, Barry, you're going, to, you're going to be working a long time on that house, pal. I mean, I guess you could maybe try and saw something with that. I don't think you'd be able to hammer a nail. Maybe once after that, your tape measure would be broken. There'd be problems with building a house with just a tape measure. You'd have problems with building a house with a tape measure and a saw. Or a tape measure and a hammer. Or a hammer and a saw. I think you see the illustration, right? God gave a toolbox with at least four, maybe five, depends on how you look at it, at least four tools in the toolbox that were needed to equip the church. Well, why give those different tools to the church? Well, they all function differently. If you look in the New Testament, you find pastors and teachers functioning a certain way in the lives of people. Pastors and teachers have, pastors have that, that shepherd dynamic. It's actually the word in the Greek for shepherd. There's a, there's a caring for the flock. There's a giving leadership. There's a giving attention. There's noticing the health issues. You know, the way the shepherd would notice whether as he moves the sheep, which is part of pastoring as well, knowing that, okay, guys, it's time for us to move from here to here now. 
We're just not going to stay at welcome to the introduction to Christianity. It's time to move over here now. You need to move on. There are points in time when a pastor needs to sit in your life and say, you've, you've stayed here long enough. You need to grow up. You've got to move on in your life. That's a pastoral function. That's what shepherds do. Shepherds begin to move the sheep, a flock, and they notice that there's three or four stragglers that are unhealthy over here. And if they notice that there's a whole bunch of unhealthy sheep, they need to think about, how do I address that? Well, the primary means that you see local leaders leading the church is through the vehicle of teaching. They teach the Word of God. And in teaching the Word of God, that's what we are fed spiritually. So, if you will, you're coming today to get served a meal. To get served a spiritual meal from the Word of God. And that's how, that's how pastor-teacher is supposed to function in the local church. And in that setting where we're walking together. And we know you. And we're able to walk with you and identify how the church is. And you know those who are called to pastor and shepherd you. But that's not the only gift that's in the body of Christ. There's the gift of evangelists. Evangelists are more concerned with the, the realm of the gospel that has to do with going with the gospel. Going into the world with the gospel. Its concern is for the lost. The person who is, evan- is gifted as an evangelist, he's given to the church as an evangelist, I believe has two components to him. One is an excessive burden in his own personal walk in life for the lost. He sees the lost. He lives, eats, and breathes with a sense of what's going on to reach the lost. Always, how can we be more effective in reaching the lost? But the other dimension that I see from this context, which quite honestly, this is a very neglected dimension in today's church. How many of you guys have heard of evangelists? Let's see your hands real quick. How many of you have heard of any of them that weren't on TV? Not a lot. When we think of evangelists, we think of tele-evangelists. And so, therefore, we think an evangelist is a guy who gets up and talks about the Bible on TV. No, that's not what an evangelist is. An evangelist has a dynamic where he is speaking to the lost. But in this passage, where we get our best definition for an evangelist, is we have a guy who is equipping the church to do the ministry to reach the lost. Very different dynamic. Sometimes we think, well, we're going to have a guest evangelist in to speak today. And he's going to come in and he's going to tell us about John 3.16 and why you need to be saved. That's what evangelists do. Well, that could be what an evangelist does. It wouldn't be wrong. It would be very appropriate for that to occur. But an evangelist also equips the saints to do the work of evangelism. He brings that burden of the lost and he brings it and he sets it on the church. Now, pastors and teachers tend to bring the sanctification dynamics of the Bible. Discipleship. Grow. Go after God. Become worshipers. Pastors and teachers tend to turn your attention towards God and each other. And walking out sanctification. That's just kind of, that's what you hear. That's what you hear in this church week in and week out. Because everybody on staff who speaks is a pastor teacher. I don't think any of us are gifted evangelists. So you don't hear, here's how you get saved. I know you heard me tell you how to get saved last week. Well, you get to hear it again. Just some new illustrations and two new verses. Well, that's what a lot of churches hear week in and week out because they're pastored by evangelists who every week they want to tell you, here's how you get saved. Here's how you get saved. So the challenge is those churches don't grow towards discipleship. Now, the challenge of being in a church like this where everything we're about is about discipleship is we need to be much more intentional about evangelism. We need Alpha desperately, because unless you tell me, Keith, you're speaking at Alpha, make sure you think this is a room full of lost people. When I stand up in front of you guys, I'm speaking to the church, and we're all in Christ, and we're looking to grow together and address issues that we need to grow together. Well, the church needs both, doesn't it? It needs the evangelist who comes in and he says, look, there's lost people out there. Are you doing anything to reach them? You ever get around people who are flaming evangelists in their lives? I mean, they're just rabid about evangelism. They think if you spend too much time with Christians, you're, you're just a waste of good salvation. <laughs> you know, selfish jerk. Don't you know there's lost people out there? And if you read, I, I read a variety of stuff. So sometimes I'll read articles or magazine articles and... Um, And you can tell this guy's gifting is in the evangelistic realm. The guy who turns around and says, you know, the church just doesn't get it today. What needs to happen is you need to shut down all these church buildings and get out in the bar rooms with people. That's what needs to happen. Evangelist. I can tell that guy's an evangelist. 
Now, what that evangelist guy needs is he needs pastors and teachers to stand alongside him and say, shh, shh, man, no, no, no. It was close. It was good intention. But can we kind of dumb down a little bit of that? Let's go out and win the loss. Let's be the church as well. We don't need to do one or the other. We're going to do both of those. We're going to worship God. We're going to have a passion for sanctification. We're going to walk with each other. We're going to love one another. And in that demonstration of God in our midst, we're going to win the lost as well. The evangelist needs to hear the pastor teacher say that because he's not thinking that way. He's thinking there's lost people out there and you people like each other too much. Get away from one another. Go find lost people. But what about, what about the prophet? We see the prophet on the New Testament pages. Right? Look, turn to Acts chapter 11 real quick. I'm, I'm summarizing a bunch because there's way too much to spend time in all of these realms Acts chapter 11, we get a little brief encounter here. And there's a lot here. And what I want to do today is, is maybe draw your attention to some things in Scripture that, that I don't know, these are things for me that I get, I get pumped and excited about. It's just that, that weird pastor thing, I think. These are the parts of the Bible that you tend to just probably just read past and go on. Right? You know, show me the really good stuff. See, for me, this is really good stuff. Listen. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, you understand, I could just get all excited about that one line right there. You see, for as a pastor, that tells me something about how the church is supposed to function. Now, you may be reading it and going, somebody came from over there to over here. What are you all excited about? Well, I'm excited because it informs me about the church in Antioch. And it informs me about the church in Jerusalem. It informs me about how God uses the gifts of Ephesians 4.11 in these churches. Which, we're all after this. We're all after the fruit of Ephesians 4.11, aren't we? We all want to be built up, strengthened, equipped. We want to be able to do the work of ministry. We want to grow up into the maturity of Christ. We don't want to be blown by everyone of doctrine. Everybody's into that. Well... If you dig a little bit deeper below the surface, you find out that it is the function of these gifts that produces that. And it's not just the function of a gift that produces it. It's the function of all these gifts that produce it. And when we read this verse right here, we get to see a little bit of it in action. Right? Verse 28. There are prophets in Jerusalem that came down to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, this is how the church benefits from the gift of prophet. Agabus is identified as a prophet. I, don't, I believe there's a distinction between the gift of prophecy where one might be in a church service and just come prophesy, and the person who functions in the office of a prophet, who functions within the church, and there's other prophets in the New Testament that give us the, the implication that not only do prophets make us aware of stuff going on that we couldn't have been aware of unless we were informed about it, but they also bring revelation from Scripture as well. So both of those are prophet functions in the New Testament. But when this man brings a revelation from God, he's going to touch the church in such a way that they're about to get mobilized for action. I think prophets have that realm of ministry in their life, that they're, that they're bringing a kind of a now dynamic. Right now, pastors and teachers tend to say, back when this word was given in the culture of the Romans, blah, 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 here's what it meant, here's what we were supposed to understand, and here's how we're supposed to walk in light of that. Prophets bring another realm of what the Bible is saying, but more specifically, right now, I believe the Lord is about to do this. Right now, the season of the church is about this. And so there's a little bit more of a now dynamic to a prophet's ministry that needs to be in the church. Well, what about apostles? Apostles function in much more of an a extra-local way. They, they function in a dynamic that doesn't just happen in one church. Apostles are church planters. Apostles want to take the gospel and see it get established. And they're not just evangelists in that they want to see people say yes to Christ. They want to lay a foundation for a church to get built out of people saying yes to Christ. So they're thinking, okay, then we will need evangelists. 
And then when evangelists start winning people into this setting, then we're going to need pastors and teachers to care for them. But this is what an apostle's doing. And we will need prophets to be able to come to this place on occasion so that they'll be able to minister in realms that prophets bring that sort of ministry. And all the time, their involvement is making sure the, the, the doctrinal foundations are being laid, the relational foundations are being laid. The apostles looking to build a church that's going to be there for, for until Jesus returns. So he's not just sharing the gospel. He's building churches. Now, churches need all of those things. The Bible intentionally has told us there is a variety here that goes into equipping the saints. You and I, in this local church, need what's described in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. There's, there's, there's nothing new. You know, we're not looking for some novel approach to the Bible. Novel approach to living the Christian life. Novel approach to being the church. When I, when I look at us as a local church... I see pastors and teachers. Lakeview Christian Center has functioning gifts as pastors and teachers. Uh, I don't think we function real strong in the realm of evangelists. I, I think the, the greatest thing we're doing, and I actually think he has evangelistic gifting, uh, would be what we do with Alpha and how we use Frank Loria here. How we use Frank, who has evangelistic giftings. A um, bunch of people in this church right now were led to Christ by Frank. Um, he does equipping. He helps us to equip the saints to be able to do evangelism. So I think we've, we've grown a lot in that category. We knew that was a weakness for us years ago. We've grown a lot in that realm. We have a long way to grow in the realm of prophets and apostles. And quite simply, what we're looking to do as a church is to look where we're weak and become strong in those areas. Always, always seeking to do that. And so in this category... There is an influence that's here that we don't see sufficiently in our midst that by way of thoughts about affiliation, these would be issues that we want to address to help us become more like the New Testament church. Look at Terry Virgo's thought in a book he wrote called The People Prepared. He says, we desperately need a rediscovery of the vital place of the local church in God's strategy. Churches built on a revelation of God's grace, open to the ministry of apostles and prophets, filled with worship and prayer and enthusiastically committed to evangelism. See, there's that whole balance that God has intended for His church to absorb all those dynamics. Now, and to give you an idea, right, here's the Bible. The Bible sounds a certain way. The Bible's talking about certain stuff. When you open the New Testament pages, everything I just said is all over it. Apostles and prophets are everywhere in the New Testament. Pastors and teachers get less mention. Teachers get a good bit more mention. Pastors, the word poimen is used very infrequently. I think it's only used twice in the New Testament, if I remember correctly. The function of shepherding is used, but the function of shepherding is used to describe also what all these gifts do. All these gifts help shepherd the church. Now, today's church has drifted, right? Here's a location that today's church has drifted. When we talk today about church leadership... What do we start talking about? Well, if we even talk about leadership and get beyond what's called worship wars, right? We're worship style. That's very important to churches. You, know, you drive by this signs of contemporary worship from this time to that time. You know, whatever other traditional worship from this time. There's this big war. I guess what's really critical to the church is whether an organ is going to be played or whether a guitar is going to be played. I mean, that, that's so critical. Let's, let's turn real quickly to Corinthians and see that. I'm just kidding. You can't find organs and guitars in the Bible. Some of y'all were thinking, I've never read that in Corinthians. Uh, exactly the point. You've never read that in Corinthians. Uh, arguments about, you know, church got to have a, a worship leader. Uh, who, go to this church because it's a worship leader. Or, or more common, what's the youth program like in your church? You know, we're looking for a church and we kind of know what the youth program is like. You got a youth pastor there? Let's turn to the second book of Oblivion and find youth programs and youth pastors. I'm sure it's everywhere in the New Testament, right? How is it that we're a church so concerned about these things, but nobody gives a rip whether there's apostles and prophets? 
When he ascended on high, first order of business, I'm going to give gifts to men. I'm going to give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So the church can become all that it's supposed to come. And we walk away from that verse and go, uh, did he give organs here? We're going to need an organ. Uh, Did he give youth programs? Now listen, that's not to say those things are wrong. You know, one of our pastors functions as a youth pastor. We have somewhat of a youth program that's aimed and targeted at youth and reaching their particular needs. Uh, One of our pastors is particularly gifted in leading worship. We have him leading worship in the church. Not against any of those things. But if we're going to build a church, let's make sure that we simply start here, identify what is here, and use that to build the church. Now, an area that we think affiliation addresses is the realm of apostles and prophets, of those who function outside of the local church, but influence the local church as it's being led by pastors and teachers and evangelists. So that would be one issue that is before us by way of thoughts on affiliation. The second is extra local church dynamics. There's a number of dynamics that come because a local church associates with a non-local setting. It connects with other people. I'm going to race through a few scriptures here. Let me just give you a few examples. Mutual support within the body of Christ is an important thing. For, for this church to gain the benefit of being encouraged and supported by the work of God with others that we're attached to outside of ourselves. And for them to be encouraged and strengthened and built up by the work of God that's taking place here. This mutual exchange where we get encouraged and edified to attempt big things for God because we've seen big things happen. But listen, a a benefit from this church has been how God has blessed the Alpha activity here. We've talked to churches who they say, man, we we tried Alpha and, you know, a dozen, two people came and it just kind of didn't go over well. And so all the air gets let out of an evangelistic tool for them because they've just not seen it work. And then they talk to us and we're excited and pumped about it. And we have hundreds of people that come to every Alpha. Well, they hear that and it's kind of like, Really? And that's exciting. It's encouraging. It's like, well, well, maybe we could try it again. Maybe we could do some things differently. And we hear the same thing about others. The move of God taking place in categories where we're weak and stuff's not going on. And we hear it happening over there. And we get excited about that. And we think, oh, man, that makes me want to pursue that. I want to see that happen in here. Where it's mutual encouragement. It's all throughout the Bible. Look in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is, a, this is an offering situation that's being taken this may be the situation where Agabus has prophesied about the, uh, the need in Judea for the saints in Judea. This is an offering that's being collected. Look at how excited these guys from hearing from one another. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul, writing to the southern part of Greece, known as Achaia, and up in the northern part is Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They gave willingly, begging us to be a part. So here is Paul being able to say, hey, you know the Macedonians? Yeah, Paul, we know the Macedonians. We know the believers up there. There's a relationship between these sets of churches that Paul can say, look what's happening in the Macedonians. And they can say, Wow. We know their situation, their extreme poverty, and they beg to be able to give in the offering. How exciting. Look over in Romans chapter 15. It's 15. It's just this camaraderie about how Paul talks about other churches. Romans 15, verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Now, who's he talking to now? He's talking to people in Rome. Now he's talking about the churches and while it's taking place in the churches in these two different provinces, now he writes to Rome and he says, look what the churches over here are doing. And he stirs them up and excites them about what the work of God in their midst. Listen, there is, there's resource being gained. You have the Apostle Paul who's about to take this offering that he's collecting from these different churches that he's related to and he's about to go back to Jerusalem and bring strong impact to the ministry that's taking place in Judea around Jerusalem. Aren't we supposed to play roles like that as a church that's part of a larger picture? There's stuff going on in the body of Christ today that you and I 
if we're not affiliated with others in some meaningful connection, we miss out on the opportunity to be a part of being a resource to others. And perhaps one day we will have a need that we will need them to be a resource to us. There could be a need that goes on in this city. Here's a great example. Uh, the tsunami that happened. When that outbreak hit, and there were thousands and thousands of people killed in an incredible need, our heart immediately, we wanted to be of help. We, we wanted to connect. We wanted to serve these people somehow. The problem was, we don't know anybody personally in that part of the world. So at that point, we need to depend on others who have related to people in that part of the world. Well, Sovereign Grace just happened to have pastors in that part of the world who had been part of their pastor's college. Some of their pastor's college and pastors had been teaching in that part of the world. They'd been invited over to teach a family of churches and ministries in that area. So they had built relationship over the last few years with these men. And so when a, when a great tragedy occurs, we were able to send thousands. I think we sent $15,000 for relief to those men over there. That without our relationship with Sovereign Grace as it is now, we wouldn't have been able to do that. Oh, we could have sent money, but it would have gone to people we don't even know who they are, how they used it, whether it was used appropriately or not. And there may come a day, you know, our city sits in the great bowl of the Gulf Coast. There may come a day where some hurricane hits this city and, and we're the big headline. And, and in that day, we're going to want to reach out and meet needs. And we're either going to do it as a local church or we're going to do it as a local church in this spot tied to a whole bunch of believers in another part of the world who can say, hey, there's a need in your community. We're pouring resources into you guys to help you meet that need so the church can bear witness through the grace of God into the community. Well, you need relationships for that to occur. And so what you see here is, is a sharing of provision that takes place all throughout the New Testament. We've, we've had an opportunity with uh, the orphanage in Mexico for us to link Sovereign Grace Ministries to that orphanage. When, when Dean goes there initially... We're the only church Dean has a relationship with. Well, it's kind of hard for one church to take on an entire orphanage and be responsible for it. Well, the only other people we had any kind of relationship with were Sovereign Grace churches. So we began to introduce Dean to Sovereign Grace churches. Years later, now Dean has four or five teams of Sovereign Grace churches that will come in every year to build, support, care for those children, give finances, pray for them. There's an intern right there, right now, serving as an intern full-time at, uh, at the ranch who's come from one of the Sovereign Grace Churches in North Carolina. Dean's staff just had the opportunity to go to the Spanish, the, the Mexican Bible College in Juarez for two and a half days of doctrine training where his whole staff got to go and benefit from that. Well, how did that happen? Well, through relationship that he had with us that we had with them that connected those two together. And you see that all over the Bible. So this is not something that we're just making up because, hey, it worked for us. Well, no, we see it in the Bible. Therefore, we need to replicate it in our own midst. The sharing of gifted leaders to be mutually supportive. Uh, you go back, there's a bunch of scriptures that I give here, but uh, you find in the New Testament the church in Jerusalem and north is a church in Antioch. And there's these ministers who are coming out of the church in Jerusalem. They're going up to Antioch. When Antioch sees people getting saved... The church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas. Barnabas goes up to help get him solidified. And while he's getting him solidified, Barnabas realizes, you know what? I guess he realizes his own limitation. As the church in Antioch is getting settled, you read this in Acts chapter 11. Uh, he sends for Saul, who is in Tarsus, because he knows there's gifting in Saul of Tarsus. In this man, Paul the Apostle, that needs to take place right here. So there's this bringing together. There's other prophets that come from Jerusalem. And they come and they teach and they minister in Antioch. And then when Antioch grows to a place of maturity, they begin to send the leaders out of there. Remember, Paul and Barnabas go out on the, on the missionary journeys. And they send men out from there. And Paul begins to, to dispatch Titus over to Crete, and Timothy over to uh, Ephesus. And, and he's sending all kinds of folks. He's directing traffic. Where is all this happening from? Apostolic ministry. The guy who kind of has the offensive game plan for the team. This church needs this. And that church, I've been in that church, it needs this. And, and, and this person over here can meet that need. I'd like to ask this person to minister in this church for a period of time. And we're going to move this over here. And apostolic ministry has its hands on something besides just a local church. But it serves the local church by doing that. It serves it by letting it send ministry when it gets mature enough to be able to do that. It serves it by bringing ministry in when it needs ministry. 
So sharing of gifted leaders is of mutual support. Uh, faith building and camaraderie. When you hear some of the reports from Paul, it's simply an exchange of, we're so excited. We're so excited about this. You brought us great comfort from this. So-and-so brought us word. And there's just this excitement that's taking place. He talks about in 2 Corinthians how the offerings that were being collected in, in Corinth were a great sense of excitement to the guys in Macedonia. They were excited. It says they were stirred and provoked by what they were hearing. Well, you and I need to be stirred and provoked. I mean, is that not a need that we have today? To hear news of God doing something in a setting that causes you and I to go, man, I, I want to see that happening in my life. I want to see that happening here amongst this church. Church planting would be another extra, extra local dynamic that takes place all over the New Testament. The Paul's missionary journeys, the little maps you have in the back of your Bible, they're church planting ventures. They're Paul and Barnabas, in one occasion, being sent from the church in Antioch to go plant churches. And when they plant these churches, they do a big loop. They go plant churches, and they come back around, and they come back to Antioch. When they come back to Antioch, they get all the church together, and they tell all the stories about what happened. And the people of God get together, and they're excited because that local church participated in planting all those other churches. You know, when that happens, and you hear the salvation, and the deliverance, and the power of God falling, you know what happens to the local church who sent all that? And the word comes back. I believe their faith goes from being this big to being this big. And then other stuff happens and their faith goes from this big to being this big. See, it's a benefit that a local church gets from being related to stuff going on outside of itself. I mean, we are, we are wonderfully strengthened by testimonies, aren't we? And one of my favorite services is what we do on New Year's Eve when we let people just come up to the microphone and just talk about their year and what God did in their life. And it's exciting to hear. I mean, your faith gets enlarged by seeing the work of God in situations that looked hopeless and needs that got met. Well, we need that as a local church. God intended that. When you look in the Bible, God uses that dynamic in the local church from outside of itself to build it up. Doctrinal oversight and input would be another extra local dynamic. To be able to receive... Input into needs and discussions and doctrinal issues. When you read Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15 is known as the Council of Jerusalem. Well, where it begins is it actually begins in Antioch, in the same church in Antioch, north of Jerusalem. A dispute has broken out about whether people need to be circumcised in order to be saved, become part of Judaism and in order to become part of Christianity. And so this great dispute takes place between Paul and Barnabas as they're teaching the people in Antioch and others there due to personal traditions, debate over what the Bible meant in the Old Testament. So they decide as a local team of leaders to submit their need to the team of apostolic leaders in Jerusalem. So they all go down to Jerusalem. They have a long discussion. They hear from one another. There's explanation being given. And in the end, the apostles decide this is how this should be handled. And they write letters back to the churches. And they solve that issue so the church can move on. So how many of you guys, don't raise your hands, but you've been in churches where... Something is disputed and it never goes away. Just always that thing lingering in the background there that the local people are button heads over, button heads and button heads, and that's all they ever do. And this issue never gets resolved. But maybe that was the situation in Antioch. They butted heads and butted heads and butted heads and butted heads at a local level until they said, you know what? We need somebody outside of us to address this issue which I put in there, is disputes. There are disputes that happen in a local church. What do you do in a day of dispute? Historically, we have lived through our own disputes at a local level. Most of you guys that are here this morning uh, haven't been around for that. But that same time frame I mentioned earlier, about 1997... We had come to a place as a group of leaders, a group of elders, to where our relationship with each other was characterized by uh, a, a tame version of hostility, um, suspicion of each other and our motives, and us and them line between those of us who were on staff and those of us who were not. Uh, questions about why people held the positions that they held as to whether they refused to see other things biblically. It just, and it was an eroding effect. 
and we actually got to the place where I think log jam was the, the word that we used. We reached a log jam. We reached a point where we butted heads and butted heads and butted heads and nothing was changing. Now, the problem is we had functionally disaffiliated from the, the Assemblies of God back in about 1990. So we're, we're years away from relationship with anybody outside of us, which we didn't have a relationship with the Assemblies either, which was part of the reason why we had uh, functionally pulled back from them. But here we are now, bumping heads at a local level, needing somebody from outside of us to step in and talk to us about us, right? How you married couples know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you get your position, you know how you are, you know how she is, and you just kind of start doing this. And you can't see that other person's position, and they can't see yours anymore. Well, this is where marriage counselors actually are helpful. Because that person comes in and says, you know, when you say this... They hear this. I can see that. And when you guys exchange and just fresh ideas, new perspectives helps you sort through some things and weed through it. So we thought somebody outside of us has got to come in here and address this. And since there was no Apostle Paul, I remember us having that discussion. We need an Apostle Paul. Well, that's what apostolic ministry really is, or at least a function of it, to come in and help locally address issues of dispute. And so we didn't have an apostle. We had read a book that we all uh, agreed on and thought was a good book. It was a book on biblical eldership. We invited the author of that book to come in and speak. And, and we had met this man before. He had spoken to us before. But, but there was no relationship with him. He was, he was an author and a man that we appreciated his views. But there wasn't a relationship with him. But he came in, met with us for a weekend, sorted through some of our issues, actually did a pretty good job identifying some issues that were in our midst that, that really weren't good and weren't healthy, and we all needed to own them. But what was missing in that equation was a relationship with this man, because when the man said, here's, here's my verdict, this needs to happen, this needs to change, this person's the wrong way, this way, boom, 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 boom. He went down the line, and after that meeting, he put together a game plan, I think you should proceed this way. After that meeting, the man who functioned as the senior pastor, essentially at that point, resigned. See, that's the fruit of not having a relationship with somebody who gives you counsel. If I don't like what you say, I'll just go away. But if I have a relationship with you, I can't go away so easily. And when you listen to Paul here and how he talks about the people he's connected to, Paul's not running a distant denomination. Paul's not saying, uh, those of you in Crete, Titus has been appointed the new bishop of Crete and will be responsible since you are now in his district. That's not Paul. Paul's talking about Titus like he's one of his buds. And Titus is coming. And I'm excited about Titus coming to you guys to set some things in order, to care for you. And, and there's a relational dynamic here amongst these folks that Paul is connected to. And, and there's times, and you know, by God's grace, uh, we have walked since that period of 1997, relationally, under amazing grace. Uh, knowing what our history had been and how we had been fractured in our relationship, to see what God has done in our lives since that time, to, to be a group of men who, who we do not have relationships characterized by dispute. We have relationships today characterized by an incredible amount of agreement and passion to pursue the same thing together and to serve one another along the way. Uh, and I'll share with you in a couple of weeks why I think a big reason as to why that's occurred. But that's not to say in the future we couldn't have disputes at a local level. Disputes that caused the existing leadership team to really be at odds with one another and say, I don't think we should do that, or I don't think we should proceed that way, or I don't agree with that teaching. And to bump heads, and in that moment this local church would benefit from somebody outside of that perspective to be able to sit down and say, help me understand all that's going on. Let me listen. Let me connect with you guys. And let me give you some thought on how you should proceed. Well, that's a realm of apostolic ministry that, that we don't have. And so one of the reasons that we're considering, considering affiliation is we see some things here that we want more fully here. And... Nothing novel here. Matt, you can go ahead and come on. I'm going to stop. Uh, nothing novel here. It's not as though we came across Sovereign Grace Ministries and they have this unique thing. They got a really cool logo and uh, you know, they, they do some stuff that we've never seen any other church do. And uh, so we just want to kind of do what they're doing. No, really, I think what we've seen is we, we see them doing a lot of what's here. 
And this is what we want. We want what's here. And we want to be framed by this word, protected by it, and led by it. Let me close, close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in your outline. He says, The great and constant danger is that we should be content with something which is altogether less than that intended for us. Let us not be a church that's content with less than what we see here. We see ministry. We see extra local connections. We see leadership at an extra local level here. Let's not be content to not have those things here in our midst. Let's do all that we can do and let's be wise in how we pursue that to be able to have all that this word wants us to have. Be fully equipped. Serve the purpose of God fully in our lives. Let's pray together. Stand up with me. Lord, thank you for your word again and again, insights that we need that frame our pursuits, give us boundaries that are wise. Thank you that you have so carefully thought out every word on these pages to inform us and to affect us. And Lord, what we see here is your passion and desire that your church would be strong, it would be healthy, it would be vibrant, it would be able to do ministry from the greatest of members to the least. It would be protected, for it, not, it would not be blown by every wind of doctrine and every new trend that comes along. Lord, this is what you have intended for your church to be. Lord, would you give us wisdom in how, for us, Lakeview Christian Center, in this season of our lives, how to more fully see these pages in our midst. Give us wisdom. Father, lead us together. Lord, let, let every person that's here this morning have a sense of owning the responsibility of being part of this church at this hour and this time. Lord, let us hear your voice. Speak to us. Lead us and compel us with this word for the sake of seeing this word in our midst, in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask you to do this. You may have some questions from today. You may have some questions about sovereign grace or affiliation, whatever. Write those down. Next week after the service, we're going to have about a 15-minute exchange. We're going to tighten things up a bit so that we don't run over. Uh, but it's going to give you a chance to ask those questions. So please write them down. There's not a question that we will be offended by or wish you hadn't asked. So please just feel free. Ask whatever is in your heart to ask. Amen.